You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 85 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode I'm going to play two excerpts from two different talks by Terence McKenna. The first excerpt is a short story about Descartes and Darwin and how paranormal events perhaps has shaped the evolution of what we consider to be normal knowledge. Let's have a listen. Well, yeah, the characteristic of the DMT flash is this encounter with these small, alive sentences which are coming approaching you and showing you stuff, telling you stuff. It seems to me as a rationalist that if you're having a conversation with someone, there must be rules in communication theory. Someone must understand this. You know, in artificial intelligence, they have this rule that what is artificial intelligence? Well, if it's a black box and you can't tell whether there's a machine or a person in there, it's an artificial intelligence. Uh, You might set up a similar test with the alien in the head. I've tried to figure out how can I tell that it's not me? How can I create a logically tight trap for it so that I can absolutely tell that um, it isn't me? And I haven't been able to figure out how to do that. This learning stuff from entities is not respectable in our present official intellectual world. But when you start asking questions, you'd be amazed where entities have acted and with what force. For example, I mean, this is, to my mind, one of the great suppressed stories of modern history. Uh, In August of 1619, a retreating Habsburg army camped in Ulm in southern Germany for a few days. They had were retreating from a campaign against Prague where they had successfully deposed the winter king and queen. And in this group of troops, of several thousand troops, was a young French adventurer 22-year-old soldier of fortune. And uh, that night, in August, the night of August the 12th in Ulm, he slept and had a dream. <clears throat> and an angel appeared to this young man and said, the mastery of nature is achieved through measure and number. This was René Descartes. This was the founder of what is called materialism, rationalism. His marching orders were given to him in the same way that Muhammad got his marching orders. All of modern science is the, was created at the behest of an angelic entity. Well, they're not talking about this at Caltech and MIT, let me tell you. So how many times in history 
have uh, voices taken the wheel. Uh, another example, one that's dear to my heart, is because uh, I kind of identify with him, is Alfred Russell Wallace, who was a poor surveyor from Devon, who was out. Uh, Uh, collecting insects in Indonesia in the last century, and he got a fever on the island of Ternate, malaria. And in the midst of this fever, he understood the solution to the great problem of 19th century biology, which was called the problem of the species. He saw how random mutation and natural selective forces could produce biological diversity. And when he came down from this thing, and this was again an angelic deliverance in the height of this fever, he uh, he couldn't figure out what to do with it. So he wrote a letter to the greatest scientist of the age, which was Charles Darwin, in London. And when Lo- and when Darwin opened this letter, you know, just said, "Holy shit." This guy has scooped me. Twenty years I've been working on the origins. Here it is in four paragraphs. Who is this guy? Well, so then it became the Darwin-Wallace theory of evolution for its first 50 years. And then Wallace dropped out of the picture because he disgraced himself by an interest in spiritualism. But uh, uh, you can understand why. uh, If the guy got the original vision from an angel... You could add a lot of the religious stories to this as well. Did Moses smoke DMT when he talked to God? Did the Prophet Muhammad do the same when he met with an angel in a cave? If these people really existed, then I think it is very likely that they were tripping their nuts off. And it doesn't make their message have any lesser value, not to me anyway. The next excerpt is much longer and it's from a talk apparently recorded in February of 1991 in which Terence McKenna raises some interesting points about the octopus, ayahuasca, DMT and surrendering. There is no point in saying anything more as Terence will say it much better as you are about to hear. Enjoy. I suppose this is the point in this discussion uh, to point out that there, this visible language that I'm talking about, there is a precedent for it in nature. Uh, there's a very interesting book, which if you're into animal communication, it's well worth reading. It's called uh, Communication and Non-Communication uh, Among the Cephalopods. And it points out that octopi uh, have this ability to change their color and their shape, and their surface texture. And it was at first assumed that this had to do with camouflage against complex backgrounds. But it turns out that it has nothing to do with that, or very little to do with that, that octopi communicate visually. And so, in a sense, the octopus is the model for the kind of future evolution of human communications that I'm suggesting we need. The octopus is, from the point of view of another octopus, uh, a naked mind, an entirely naked mind, because it does not transduce its thoughts into acoustical waves which move across space and are then reconstructed in a culturally sanctioned dictionary. 
it actually becomes its meaning. It translates syntax into three dimensions and it dances its intent. And the soft body of these creatures allows them to fold and unfold and reveal and hide parts of themselves very rapidly. As fast as we can make speech, they do this. And so this is a potential model for how human beings might communicate. After all, if we were simply naked minds, I imagine us as existing as somewhat filamentatious creatures in a semi-aqueous cybernetic medium with us displaying our syntactical uh, intent on our surface. You would become what you mean in that case. And the octopus does that. The reason octopi extrude ink into the water is so that they can form a private thought. It's the only way that they're able to disconnect from the telepathic net. Well, the question is, what about the way ayahuasca is being done in America without ikaros and ritual? I've never sat in on an American ayahuasca session. I know they occur in several different styles. The thing about ayahuasca that you have to be aware of that is both a strength and a weakness of it is that unlike mushrooms or peyote or iboga or morning glory seeds or datura, it is a drug in the sense that it's combined of two ingredients and made by somebody. Nobody makes peyote. Nobody makes mushrooms. But somebody makes ayahuasca. And, and it's like uh, flan or something. It can be made badly or it can be made well. So the first issue is how was it made? And the style of these more public ayahuasca circles is to make it mild. They don't want people swinging from the chandeliers. It, ayahuasca can range over a spectrum from what's all the excitement about to, you know, hang on Hannah. <laughs> the, and, and so, you know, it takes a bit of fiddling uh, uh, to get it right. As far as DMT is concerned... Uh, Ayahuasca is driven by DMT. What made me go to the Amazon was I first encountered DMT in the underground in Berkeley in 1967. And I was absolutely amazed. I mean, I had already taken LSD. And, and, but for me and to this moment, uh, DMT is just the most amazing thing in the universe. I mean, it shouldn't exist it, it's impossible. And every time I do it, I come down and I say, this is impossible. I mean, to call that a drug? What a joke. I mean, it just masquerades as a drug. It's not a drug. That's preposterous. Uh, the problem with DMT is its incredible power. That... Only the most intrepid can form any coherent impression whatsoever of what's going on if it's a strong trip. I mean, there are sub-threshold trips where you just graze the tummy of the beast and then people come down with various models of 
archetypal closure with the cosmic carnival. That's the archetype of DMT, is the cosmic circus. And, and, but once you, if you actually get a strong hit of it, which is in no way dangerous, but simply a true boundary dissolving hit, it's into some place, it's almost like, well, I once said, you know, the, there's danger of death by astonishment. <laughs> and, and I think that's true. That's the major danger is death by astonishment. Because you just get in there and you say, my God, you know, I thought I had some expectation of what was possible and instead this is just so blown that and it re- it somewhat freaks me out i have to confess it's it is so alien so huge so complete in itself so unrelated to our petty concerns on this planet i mean i went to it first as an art historian and the, and i was a jungian I mean, I, you know, I had Jungian proclivities, and, and I thought, you know, w- what does this say about the archetypes? There is no archetype for this. Not in the painting of the Bushman, not in the ecstasies of Hildegard von Bingen, not in the ravings of Mandayan ecstatics. Human spiritual experience never got this deep, never tore open this doorway. And yet what? It's a long toke away for an ordinary human being. How could something that titanic and beautiful and cosmic and alien be kept secret? When what we do is we seek in all corners, in all times and places, for the bizarre, the outre, the unthinkable. We're always turning over rocks, secret teachings, you know, ancient cities, buried ruins, lost tribes, you name it. Well then, here is this thing which is like the absolute quintessence of what all those things are, are aiming for. You know, more stunning than the rise of Atlantis from the Atlantic seaboard is a toke of DM. More appalling than the the arrival of alien star fleets in the skies of our planet. And yet, it's here. It's here. And I don't often invoke it. I mean, for me to talk about it is to invoke it. Because it's weird to talk about it. Because it reminds me that we don't know what we're doing at all that we sit in rooms discussing all this stuff and and you know a war rages ignorant armies clash by night that whole thing but you know this extraordinarily powerful thing the depth of which the measure of which is so hard to take lies very near what i had hoped from what i had hoped for from ayahuasca was Uh, my brother and I, when we got into this DMT stuff, we said, we've got to slow down this movie. I mean, you get in there for about 70 seconds, the first 35 of which is taken up with you checking all your meters to make sure you're not dead. (laughs) Because that's... That's what you assume, you know. You you say, I did it, I'm dead, I'm fuck it, I'm dead. And, And then you 
say, but, you know, chest rising and falling, <laughs> thoughts continuing in linear, per- apparently I'm not dead, apparently I'm something else. Well, then by the time you sort it out, you're usually coming down. And people come down babbling, raving. I mean, I've seen, you know, people who've headed mega corporations, people who are accustomed to uh, ordering hundreds of people around, just completely... Uh, come apart because it is so unexpected. So our notion was slow the movie down, get in there. And uh, uh, ayahuasca looks like a strategy for doing that. And we couldn't imagine, you know, can you picture people wearing penis sheaths and painting themselves with red ochre and they have this and this is what they're doing? And, and then it makes the whole notion of history seem crazy. I mean, I mean, we're primitives because we diddle around with atom smashers and stealth bombers and stuff like that. I mean, you know, and these people have this other thing. So, of course, they don't wear clothes. Build would you? You know? And uh, largely, I would say, uh, what we've learned from 20, 25 years of dealing with this is that our strategy was right. Ayahuasca will let you in to these places, and so will psilocybin. What I've decided, based on experience, is that uh, what I'm interested in is a very tiny subset of all the smorgasbord of possible altered states and experiences that life and nature offer up, that there are many altered states, detura, ketamine, MDMA, endlessly, and then, you know, uh, states brought on by ordeal and uh, and fasting and meditation. I, I am only interested as a phenomenologist, definitely more with the attitude of the scientist than some kind of conclusion drawer. I'm interested in this very circumscribed area in organic nature because it's not supposed to be there, folks. It's like uh, a little a doorway into the previous universe or something. The whole, you know, in the, in, at the height of Islam in the 10th century, the poets of the Mughal dynasty said of the city of Isfahan in, in Iran because of its mosques and architecture that it was half the world. The Isfahan is half the world. DMT is half the world. The shiny, bright active, uh, exfoliating, and bizarre part. Well, then, we then are poised in this strange dimension of diminished possibility. Where are we? What is that? What is it to possess a body such that you can use it as an instrument to turn on and off these places? How does it reflect on the quest for understanding of the here and now? How does it request, uh, reflect on the quest for, uh, uh, I don't know, immortality or, or enlightenment or uh, a sense of fitting in to the cosmic purpose? Um, I don't know. I mean, one can play a reductionist game and say that the human brain-mind system is an alarm clock, DMT is a hammer... 
hit the alarm clock with the hammer and you learn all about gears <laughs> because they spring out and become visible. But, uh, and this is how science works. This is the scientific method. Smash it. Then count the pieces. Find the bigger pieces. Find the littlest pieces. Smash them. Count the pieces. Find the little pieces. Smash them. That's how it proceeds. Well, obviously, that's not going to take us too far in this domain because it's entirely made up of structure, of connection, of relationship, of uh, thought. And... uh, Because I'm concerned about the planet and the predicament we're in and the way we spend our resources and cheat our children of a sane future and all that, I keep trying to reconnect this back into the human world. But I frankly don't know whether that can be done. Another area I work in is I try to connect it up to the perennial philosophies of, of humanity, Zen and Buddhism and shaman. I don't know whether that can be done. The shamans that I have gotten really close to have not been, I would not call, they were able to cure people, but they had no pretension of spiritual accomplishment. They weren't even interested in that. They were interested in what they would call understanding the same thing which drives a scientist they say I I mean Don Fidel who I took most of my ayahuasca with we would take it on Saturday nights with a group of about 40 people and cure and then we would take it on Wednesday nights just he and I or a couple of other people and that was for learning he always said and he said you can't cure unless you learn and I felt very comfortable with these people because it, it from the outside it looks like ritual and taboo and power and from the inside it's just hey let's all cook something up and try to figure it out it was totally familiar to me from my days in Berkeley in the 60s it's the head ethic it's cook it up try it out try and make sense of it with your friends and uh, if we you see I think it's very disempowering to believe that somebody else has the answer and that your life consists of sorting out a bunch of options to try and find this person who has the answer Uh, the generous point of view the ecumenical point of view when looking at the world's religions and spiritual traditions is to say everybody has a piece of the answer you know the Buddhists have a piece the Kabbalists have a piece everybody has a piece the mushroom on this subject is extremely ungenerous it says nobody has a piece it's just preposterous You know, the reason the world doesn't make sense to you is because the world doesn't make sense to you. How could it? I mean, look where you're starting from. Where is it writ in adamantine that troops of monkeys should comprehend the architectonics of the cosmos? You know, it's just uh, not part of the deal. So uh, then you have to rest with some kind of provisional arrangement. But I, I somehow think that the forced evolution of language is how we're going to work our way back into taking care of our planet and that psychedelics are the catalyst for this. They show us, number one, 
that there is a transcendent other, which I certainly didn't believe there was till I took psychedelics. I mean, I was raised Roman Catholic. I spent a lot of time deconditioning myself from the transcendent other and embracing a kind of, uh, of materialist agnosticism. Well, that lasted 15 seconds into the first DMT trip, and then that had been vaporized <laughs> for all time. So I, I think we need to honor the religious impulse, but I'm very, I'm very skeptical of all hierarchical con games where the idea is somebody knows something and somebody else doesn't, and then they have to trade off their uh, relationship. You know, the Rolling Stones have a song that says, you don't get what you want, you get what you need. Uh, I don't think you're going to spend very long involved with these things at a deep level without scaring your socks off uh, eventually. I mean, one of the great things about these psychedelic teachers is that they are so gentle with beginners and then the flip side of that coin is they are so unforgiving with veterans and uh, I don't know I mean I have hard trips often and the way I explain it to myself is you know I pretty much accept Rupert Sheldrake's notion of the morphogenetic field and uh uh, feel like the psychedelics amplify the morphogenetic field of the totality. And, you know, why shouldn't I have difficult trips? The totality is in such a weird state of turmoil. I mean, you couldn't pay me to take five grams of mushrooms in the present circumstances simply because I can feel the riptides in the historical dimension just churning everything into white water. I mean, I'd stay out of the water till uh, it dies down a little. Uh, Fear is a problem because, well, there are different reasons, but here's a a reductionist reason. These compounds are CNS stimulants, and that means they're going to stimulate what's called the fight-or-flight reflex in the hindbrain. One of the hardest things I think you, you have to learn to do is to discipline the hind brain. You know, to sit in a full lotus position, absolutely petrified with fear, and not do anything about it, except breathe and sing. You know, um, Paul Herbert. Uh, Paul Herbert, <laughs> the other Herbert, the Herbert who wrote Dune who is such a minor figure that I can't even remember his first name, Frank Herbert, he uh, has a wonderful thing in there talking about fear. And he says, fear comes like a wind out of the desert and it blows through you. And all you can do is let it blow itself out. And you really can do this. You just wait. Fear is a kind of state of... uh, agitation of the organism that chemically cannot maintain itself very long. So wait it through. Then in terms of practical suggestions, sing. You must sing. I mean, it's terrible to be have it sit heavily on you and to try and deal with it like this, you know, just crumple. You have to oxygenate your body. 
You have to begin moving energy through your body. You can sing your way out of most situations. That's the best advice. And you can breathe your way out of of most situations. And uh, it's a set of techniques. No, you're quite right. It's a set of techniques. They're very simple, but if you don't know them, you're in deep, deep water. And breath control and not being afraid to articulate. We have some kind of taboo against sounding. But, you know, I've sung... I've started in the depths of hell singing to save my soul and managed to sing my way right through normality and right on into heaven, you know. It takes courage. And courage is not something that is demanded of us very much in the modern world. I mean, we occasionally deal with large amounts of fear, like when some jackass cuts in front of you on the freeway and, you know, you soak your clothes with sweat in under a third of a second, those kinds of things. But courage, where we actually determine to do something that feels dangerous or challenging to us, and then doing it, we don't do. And especially boundary-dissolving challenges... I mean, the macho type will, you know, climb El Capitan, jump out of airplanes, uh, and, uh, and that sort of thing. But strangely enough, those macho types are sometimes the most reluctant to just sit quietly in their living room on five dried grams because uh, it's a different kind of surrender. You know, it's a it's a surrender to something feminine and penetrating, and uh, you don't have to. It's the opposite reflex. Surrender is the opposite reflex to conquest. Now, to conclude this episode, I'm going to play a track from Killer Priest's album, The Psychic World of Walter Reed, and the track is called Brillantaire. Killer Priest also appears in episode 42. And I will post links to Killer Priest in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com. Freedom is in the mind. There is any such thing at all as intelligence and love and beauty. Well, you found it in other people. Sitting in my chair, then the vision appears Staring at the wall, the wall turned into the spheres And the spheres held the planet, someone distant, some near Out of limits, I and the instant was there Warm currents were rushing, affinities came in abundance Century seasons, only by the dozens Prophesies are not coming, and it was told I hold the mic way beyond the hundreds The mic turned to greatness Greatness took me to the sacred places to give the glory over me like a blanket. Then I reclined so I could see the design. Voice said, close your eyes, all we need is your mind. And the rhyme, like a storm as the currents blew me on through gases. I saw places where planets were born. And the voice that spoke to my ghost majestic, let's show you the essence. Let's reveal to you the presence, the seven seal of the heavens. Within the will, the legend, the seal of the lessons, the skill is perfection. Thanks, Neil, before the weapon out came. Of the sinners to heal within the message to build effervescence. I felt shadows all around me. They said there's just the pharaohs trying to crown me. There's tarot and crystal balls within your boundary. You're now free to explore all the visions and encounters your mind can soar. For all the wisdom and the counsel, a psychic mystique. I've been writing for weeks. Every time I say a rhyme, it whites my 
teeth Make angels pillars of stone, people pillars of salt When I reveal under the cloth, when the killer would talk Swimming in the cosmic gulf, in the rivers of thought Where the healers was taught, but in the mirror seemed lost And they finished the plan of Tiamat on the Shabbat Then they planted eating crops in the evening would drop When there was nothingness, that's when y'all made the covenant On the cross, his blood would drip in the cost of buzzes pick Time and admiration, stress and aggravation I don't do yoga, but I can stress imagination God tears turns to prayer beads Falls over the neck of a cardinal wearing a wooden Mary Whispering verses over the buried in the Celtic cemetery And he held it to his visions were heavy Like a time machine, saw the dynasty of kings Your mind is what seen, the skyline turned to rain We wear paint, beads, water or oil Saint, holy men, back or royal Angels, devils or aliens Which you believe in more? Do you want peace or war? Do you wish to live free of my law? It gets deep to the core. We perform prayers, fasting, charities, go on pilgrimage. But do we know what real healing is? Research a million of years, the real healing is here. Without the billion, I became a billionaire. From natural disaster to the days of dinosaurs and raptors, to common law to all kinds of war, to the rapture.